This is a recording made in the chapel of the opened book under the covering title The Form of Sound Words and today we concentrate our attention upon the word truth. Those of you who have been taking this series will know that for the a way in which to classify we have just taken the alphabet and we are getting near to the end of this series. We are looking at the word truth today and we go on for about two, two, perhaps three more subjects and then we shall have to turn our attention to other aspects of the Word of God. Well now, just before this tape recording was made, we read together that great chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I would like you to open that because presently I shall have to refer to it. Now first of all, uh, I don't know whether you know Francis Bacon's writings, uh, but he spoke of jesting Pilate. Because you remember, our Saviour stood in the, in the presence of Pilate and spoke about having been sent to bear witness to the truth. And he said, what is truth? Now I don't think Pilate was jesting. Pilate was a Roman governor, that he was more a soldier and a governor than he was a philosopher. But for several centuries, the Greek philosophers and afterward the Roman ones had been probing and speculating as to what was reality. Now you may have think they were wasting their time. Well, they may have been in some measure. But I want to help you in this matter and so you must uh, be patient with me. I really think Pilate when, he, when our Saviour said truth, he looked at him and he said, What is truth? Some tell me this, some tell me that, some tell me the other. Well, I ask you, friends, what is truth? If I went round and we all gave our answers, I dare say we'd have a variety. What is truth? Well, one of the ways in which we can uh, try to discover what we mean when we use such a word is to look up a good dictionary. Well, this is what I find. Dictionary says, truth is conformity to fact. So you say, that's all right then. Yeah, wait a minute, friends. What is fact? Oh, you're going to start again, are you? Would you criticise me if I said, what a glorious sunset? Or would you say, now, now, now. You know full well the sun never sets. It's the earth going round in its orbit turning on its axis, and it's the rising of the earth between you and the sun. Oh, would you say, if we've got to talk like that, we'd never get home tonight. What is fact? If I say to mother, oh no, she says to me, aren't those geraniums a gorgeous red down the garden? I say, now wait. They're not a gorgeous red at all. They're only throwing away the red that's in the light and keeping back the blue and the yellow. So strictly speaking, if you could see without light, I don't know how you could, they'd be green. Fancy talking like that. You see, friends, what I'm getting at, we are living today in a world of appearances. And if you started trying to get, convince somebody who was a little bit well up in this philosophic aspect, 
he would just tip you over with regard to trying to prove what was true. And you'd leave and think, well, where am I? Don't try. The word of God has warned us in this passage that we're living in such a condition. So I'm going to read the last few verses of 1 Corinthians 13 again, so that those of you who were not with us when we read the passage shall share it with us now. He says in verse 9, that's toward the end of the chapter, for we know in part, and I translate that in a more modern idiom to say we know partially. Partially. We don't know completely anything yet. We know partially. And we prophesy partially. But when that which is perfect, you see, the perfect is over and above and beyond the partial. But the perfect thing is the future. It's the partial knowledge that we have now. That which is in part or partial shall be done away. Then he gives you a figure. When I was a child, I spake as a child. And you will be very sad if your little child prattles away in the most abstruse mathematical and scientific and philosophic terms almost as soon as you can say mama. It's natural. Well, we are only children yet in relation to knowledge in its full sense. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But of course, he says, when I became a man, I put away childish things because I'd grown up. Now comes a passage that needs a little care. For now we see through a glass darkly. Well, I don't know whether any ladies in this congregation have a little metal polished mirror in their handbag. May have. Well, that's what it means. It's not glass. There's no glass here. In the Old Testament, you're told that in one occasion, and for one reason, they collected up the glasses of the women, the mirrors of the women, and they melted them down and turned them into sheets of brass to cover the altar. You see, there was no such thing as seeing through a piece of glass. We now see by means of, that word through, by means of a mirror. And the word darkly, in the margin, says, in a riddle, an enigma. We don't see reality, not yet. We are looking in a mirror, which is reflecting something that's there, and we've got it all mixed up and part of it upside down. But it says, now I know partially. But then, face to face. Now I know in part, then shall I know, even as I also am known. But, you're not left destitute. If you can't argue philosophically as to what is truth, now abide faith, hope, and love. And you'll discover that that's about as far as you can get with regard to what is truth. Because a day will come when faith will resolve itself into sight and hope will be realised and love will be manifested and experienced in a sense it cannot be now. That will be truth in the fullest sense. So we must be prepared to discover that in this world 
we shall never be able to prove mathematically. You see, mathematics is an exact science. I'm not very good mathematician. I'm pretty bad. But I think I could prove that two add two make four. Until you trip me up and then you give me two apples and two pears and I say, oh, what do I do now? I've got to be careful, haven't I, even with two and two because they must be all of the same thing first. Not so easy, is it, friends? And I cannot mathematically prove the basis of my faith. I cannot prove to a scientific mind or a philosophic mind what I hold most dear. That doesn't mean to say it isn't true. It means to say we've never been given in the scriptures the, the work to prove that God is true. Because, you see, truth is, the, is associated with the word trust. And trust hasn't got it all demonstrated mathematically. We only know a thing to be true in this way when we know by experience the character of the person who is telling us. Now if you know by say many years of contact that some particular person is utterly trustworthy then you can begin to say what he says is true. Well, we find truth and God's faithfulness are balanced a little bit in scripture. Now will you look at Romans the third chapter and see the way the apostle uses one and then the other. He says, he's taking up the objection that the Jew made. Romans 3, what advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Or he says, much every way, chiefly because unto them were entrusted or committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God? Now the faith of God doesn't mean what, be, what God believes. It's the utter trustworthiness of God. The faith of God without effect. And then presently, he says, verse 7, if the truth of God, see, if the faith of God is questioned, if the truth of God, so the truth of God is the fulfilment of all that we have trusted him to bring about according to what he has promised. And so with Romans, let's look at the 15th chapter. Verse 8. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God. What does that mean? To confirm the promises made unto the fathers. God had made promises. Well, anybody can make promises. I can make the most fantastic promises. But it doesn't follow that they will be realised or fulfilled. But when we come to God's promises, wherever we test, we find they ring true. And so if you will turn just for a moment to Isaiah chapter 43, you'll find that one of the ways in which we can be assured about the faithfulness of God to keep his word, is in this question of the fulfilment of prophecy. Isaiah 43, verse 9. Let all the nations be gathered together, 
all. Notice in verse 8, as though it's been already knowing that I was going to read 1 Corinthians 13 about seeing in a puzzle, all backwards. Bring forth the blind people that have eyes, and the deaf that have ears. Blind and yet got eyes. Deaf and yet got ears. Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show or us former things? Let them bring forth their witnesses that they may be justified or let them hear and say it is truth. Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe and understand that I am he. And so he says, the fulfillment of the prophecies and promises of God are a great evidence in the scripture that God is true. Now, I don't remember for the moment how many prophecies converge on the person and work of Christ. <coughs> but you will remember, there are dozens and dozens of passages all converging on one point. Now, you might say by accident, two statements may meet in one person, or three, but thirty, or three hundred. Well, so that's getting beyond accident. Where should Christ be born when he came? Bethlehem, he was. What sort of end would he have? They pierced my hands and my feet. They cast lots upon my vesture. Written in the days of David. And they couldn't have understood when they read it what it could have meant. And over and over again, God meets the challenge, what is truth? And our Saviour, remember, said, Thy word is truth. But he didn't bring forth any so-called proofs. He simply stated it. Well, now you've either got to believe Christ or not. And if you say, well, unless he proves it, I won't believe it. What are you going to do about the forgiveness of sins? What are you going to do about salvation? What are you going to do about the hope of glory in heaven? You see, that's where faith comes in. Now abide faith, hope, and love which includes them both. We see now, by means of a mirror, in an enigma, a riddle, you are looking at me, friends, and in the ordinary way you would say that I'm standing on my feet and the head is on top and my feet are at the bottom. But you know as well as I do that if you've been making those wonderful little coloured photographs of your holiday and then you come home and you put the sheet up and you say, now this is where we were so and so, you, you don't put the picture in upside down well, when the picture comes on the sheet, it will be upside down. You see, it's altogether upside down. If you could see what is on the retina of your eye just now, my head would be down there, and I should look as though I'm pointing up there. If you look at the back of a camera, it's all upside down. Because the light having to converge through the lens crosses over, and so my optic nerve then retranslates the upside down and the brain says, all right, carry on. But, you see, Pilate wasn't so far off when he said, what is truth? 
And the dictionary that tells you that it's truth is conformity to fact. It's got to tell you what a fact is. And by the time you struggle with that, you say, well, I've been amazed. Now we can learn a lesson from a very ignorant man. That's very good for us sometimes. A man born blind, never went to school, had no learning, just a beggar. And a beggar in the days of Christ was a pretty well down and out. And then the Lord met him. And he gave him sight. And the Pharisees who were antagonistic to our Saviour, they bombarded this man with questions. They said, he's a sinner. This man's a sinner who's done it. But he shrugged his shoulders in a measure and he said, I'm no theologian. Whether this man is a sinner or not, he said, it seems a funny thing to me that God should use a sinner to open my eyes, but he said, I don't know. But I'll tell you what I do know. One thing I know, whereas I was blind, now I see, what are you going to do with that? Well, they didn't know what to do with it. Now that is our test, friends. Wherever there has been a promise made by God, in the Old Testament, and the time has come, it's been fulfilled. So now he says, well, where you have to wait, won't you still trust me? that what I have done is a pledge of what I will do. And you can do nothing else but say, yes, that's true. So you see, it's not quite so easy as you might first of all have thought to say, oh, well, truth is conformity to fact. Well, another definition has been given. It is fidelity to an allegiance. Well, you see, what is allegiance? Allegiance to what? A Roman Catholic believes something that I couldn't possibly believe. So he has an allegiance but it doesn't prove it to be true and because I don't believe it it doesn't prove it to be false. So once again you see we can't take it like that. Allegiance to political views who are right. The Tories, Liberals, the Labour Party, the Communists, who are right. Every one of them have got those who've got their allegiance. And some of them stand in Trafalgar Square and get pelted, and the next week they turn around and pelt the other lot. So you see, allegiance? No, that isn't it. Well, another definition, it's conformity to logic. Now, logic is very severe, very cold, very matter-of-fact. But you see, a logical statement depends upon what we call the premises. It's something you premise at first and then you prove. Now, if your premises are right, you can't help yourself. But if you listen to some people's arguments, their premises are not right. I remember reading that two professors were walking through a very narrow alleyway up in Aberdeen from the university and two women up the top were arguing at one another out of their bedroom windows across. He said, They'll never agree. They're arguing from different premises. And of course, that had two meanings. <laughs> now I'm going to give you uh, a, a, a statement in logical form. All men, all men are mortal. 
Or, I'll put it this way, all men are sinners. And we can find chapter and verse for that in Scripture, and you can find chapter and verse in that in all the contacts you've made in life. All men are sinners. Socrates was a man. This is one of the old stock ones in the early days of philosophy. All men are mortal. Socrates was a man. Therefore, it it is capable. Socrates must be mortal, mustn't he? You can't help yourself. So I'm going to put it again. And you'll see what I'm driving at. All men are sinners. Jesus Christ was a man. I'm done, aren't I? What am I going to do now? I've either got to go on and accept that, or I've got to go back and alter that. So you see, it's no good saying it's conformity to logic, because you, you must be sure of your logic. Now, of course, if I go back and I put my premises right, all men descended by physical uh, life from Adam. Now, I sinners. But that doesn't include our Saviour. You see. So, what I'm trying to leave with you is that we haven't got to try to prove. We haven't got to do that. It's the exercise now of faith that trusts. And troth, to keep troth, is the very much the same word as a word trust. Now, uh, Take again one or two other illustrations of the difficulty to prove anything. A missionary, he found that the king or the leader of this particular tribe, well, he, he swallowed not only Jonah and the whale, but a whole lot of it easily. He had no objections. But when this missionary from England just dropped a hint that in certain parts of the year, People could skate on the surface of a river. It was solid on the top. He nearly lost his life. Because the man had never come across such a thing. So I come back to that text with which we started. For now, now, we see by means of a mirror enigmatically. So if you expect me to prove all things in that sense, I should be running my head against this chapter. I don't. But where I cannot trace him, I put my hand in his and I walk in the dark with him. For where I have come in contact with God, where I have come into contact with his son, when I have tested his word, it rings so true that where there's no explanation, God says, well, that's just where faith comes in. It's not credulity, it's just common sense, and we're doing it all day long with one another. You remember Aesop's fables? They were not written just for fairy tales, they were written to teach. And the centaur, that mythical being with a body of a horse and a body of a man, said to this man in Aesop's fables, Why are you blowing your porridge? Oh, he said, It's to cool it, it's too hot. Then presently he said to the man, Why are you blowing the fingertips? Oh, he says, they're so cold, I'm warming them. Oh, he said, I see. Circumstances alter cases. When you know the circumstances as God knows them, 
you'll have the explanation for all your puzzles. But you not get that knowledge until you know, even as you are known. So, now we walk by faith and not by sight. For our sight is given us in this present world of appearances. So we were quite content to say a rose is red. We were quite content to say I'm not standing on the head, although that's what you see on your retina, although your brain turns it the other way around afterwards to save you from going crazy. So it's not one of those easy things that you can dismiss. Now the Old Testament word for faith has come right over into our language. It's the word Amen. Right back in the Old Testament, the word truth is just the word Amen. I don't know whether you've heard of two men, two different nationalities. They were, I think they were on a mission, but they met in some wild or outlandish place right in the heart of Fighting Africa. And they were stuck because neither of them could speak what the other one did. So at last one says, Hallelujah! And the other one says, Amen! They got a link. Now when our Saviour says, Verily, verily, in John's Gospel, if you look at the original, he says, Amen, Amen. Verily is true, you see. Now, he bears that title. In the book of the Revelation, he is said to be the Amen. Christ is God's Amen to all that he has promised. And so far as I'm concerned, I don't question with Pilate. I don't see the person of Christ as Pilate saw him. But I don't shrug my shoulders and say, what is truth? I look at the face of Jesus Christ and I see God's truth in a person. And then my trust goes out to him and the more I test him, the more he proves to be true. And that's as far as we'll get in this life. I dare so we'll have some jolts when that day comes. And the things that we thought we knew so cleverly and so well will then be seen at long last as realities. But I doubt whether we are so constituted that we would understand reality if we saw it for the moment. So, we now speak as a child, we think as a child, we understand as a child. We see by means of a mirror in a riddle. But a day is coming when we should know, even as we are known. Well now, other things. The Greek word for truth is aletheis. And you may remember in Greek mythology, there was a river. And that river, called Lethe, was a place of oblivion. And it could be induced, this sort of uh, oblivion, by smoking hashish or opium or one of those drugs. Now, the word for truth is to take away that. It means not obliterated, not oblivion, not concealed, not distorted. Alethes is the beginning of clearing away that which has been piled upon the truth. Because don't forget, we are living 
in the world which is dominated largely by the lie. Satan and his activities are summed up as the lie. And that lie is in connection with idolatry. As you might like to get a few passages which substantiate this. It says, um, verse 25 of chapter 1 of Romans, it says in verse 23, And change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like a corruptible man, and to birds, and to four-footed beasts, and creeping things. And remember, that could be a description of the most intelligent people and the most wonderful builders that this world has known, the Egyptians. If you've been, ever been to the British Museum, you'll see in one of the cases a robe of mummified cats. Mummified cats. Worshipped by those who built the pyramids. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonour their own bodies between themselves. Now, who exchanged, not merely changed, but they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. So, again, another passage, and you know, says John, no lie is of the truth. And um, in the two Thessalonians, where it looks to the end, the summing up of all this opposition to God, he says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, concerning the mystery of iniquity. It says, um, verse 8 of chapter 2, And then shall that wicked one be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and wonders. Those three words are used of Pentecost. Those three words are used of the miracles wrought by the Holy Spirit. But there's one other word slipped in. They are all lying. So here we have utter travesty in this world. And if you're not watchful, you'll be deceived. Easy to be deceived. So it's the working of Satan with all power and signs and wonders that are pertaining to the lie. Now what about these people who believed it? And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because, God's giving a reason, because they receive not, now it doesn't say they were clever professors, they didn't receive the love of the truth. That manifested the, the heart that was in them. They didn't receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And that has, a, that has a sort of a boomerang. If you will not receive the love of the truth that you might be saved, watch out lest you accept and swallow any amount of lies. That they might, for this cause God shall send them a strong delusion that they should believe not merely a lie, but the lie, and so on. So you see, truth is there ranged against the lie. And our Saviour stands in the Scriptures as the Prince of Truth, 
and Satan attacks him and he stands as the prince of darkness, the prince of the lie. Now, where do we come in? What do we do? Well, you say, one of the ways in which we can test in the ordinary, everyday life a claim to anything, we ask, does it work? Our Saviour breathes a prayer. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Well, we are an unsanctified lot by nature. Holiness is beyond us. The ordinary man in the street, unless he works at a printer's or a shop that sells books, I could almost guarantee that if I went outside this chapel and buttonholed the first man that went by and said to him, are you a Christian? And he said, no. I said, am I right in saying you've never used once in the whole of the year that's passed the word holiness? Why should I? doesn't enter in to ordinary conversation, to ordinary literature, to ordinary letter writing, to any business activities. And here's something that comes into a life which is to do with evil and uncleanness and wickedness and sin and our Saviour says sanctify them through thy truth thy word is truth you know I've mentioned this before that while I had a happy home as a boy there was no place for God in it and no knowledge of his word I never remember opening a Bible and once as a boy I picked up a book, opened it, looked at the page and shut it up and thought, ooh, mustn't read that. It was Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. What would have happened if I had read it? I don't know, but God saw to it I came at the right time, not my time. Now, there must be in the ordinary everyday life agreed to this, that every effect must have an efficient cause. You can't have an effect without a cause behind it. Well, what changed my life? What turned me upside down and inside out? What changed me from one who was quite indifferent? I spent my Sundays with a lot of Bohemian artists outside in the country doing sketching or wondering what people could see to go into that little old church over there. Got no place for it at all. Then suddenly, like a stroke of a pen, I was a believer. I was saved. I turned my attention to the book and I was used. You've got to explain it somewhere, haven't you? Well, now you see, we've got to the end of our time but only to the beginning of our subject. So that those of you who are listening, those who are here, we shall have to pick it up again the next time we meet so that we get the other side of the story as to the question, what is truth? Uh, I've taken this line because you may be very much disturbed if you're not prepared to meet the philosophic and the logical and the mathematical person who will turn you inside out and upside down if you try to prove what God has never asked you to do. We walk by faith and not by sight. Now we know partially. One day we shall know as we are known. And then the hymn puts it, I'd sooner walk in the dark with God than go alone in the so-called light. One day we shall be in the light and we shall know without peradventure. 
Till that day comes, let us have this love that includes faith and hope and see to it that all that we believe and all we hope for is focused in one person. That if we have to give up what we call the truth, we've got to give up Christ himself. And by the time we've done that, it's too big a cost to satisfy somebody else's objections. We'll leave it then, shall we, in suspense, so that we can come back again next time, God willing, pick it up and take it to another stage.